0: The king is sleeping, oh, what a glorious night, oh, what a glorious night.
1: Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church on this second Sunday of Advent as we continue to rejoice together that Christ is coming <laughs> into our world. We're going to begin by lighting the second Advent candle. Fire burns, it hurts, it can destroy. Fire also gives warmth and light. The coming of Christ is both a day of judgment and a day of promise. Two candles flickering brightly help us remember that the coming of Christ has many meanings. Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth springs up from the ground and righteousness smiles down from heaven. Light two candles, see them glow Brightly so that they all may know How two candles show the way Making our darkness bright as God's day Faithfulness will spring up from the ground And righteousness will look down from the sky Dear God, we have made much to do And we are not sure we will be ready for the day of your coming In Advent's light... Help us to see what is important, to be with who you want us to be, and to do what you have for us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we continue in worship together.
0: is day oh. Gl- Gl- The one who made the starry skies The baby born to sacrifice Christ the Messiah
2: Reading this morning comes from Malachi chapter 7, or 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. Breaking Covenant Through Injustice. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, Where is the God of Injustice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord.
3: As we continue in worship this morning, I invite you to take a couple of moments to uh, greet others who are here in worship, maybe introduce yourself to someone you don't know as we... uh, we just join our hearts together and as we prepare to hear God's word. So there's this common practice that I find as people um, encounter uh, me in ministry and in their lives is that they, people will often come to me with questions they have about God or life, a combination of those things. And Of course, the expectation is if you're a minister, you know all the answers to all the questions. And I, I, try, I try not to minimize that truth, but it often comes up that that's not the case. But sometimes when I'm trying to figure out the meaning of a scripture passage, especially when you consider that that not everything God could have said to us is in the Bible. I mean, it's it's a small, limited section of, of all of the things that God could have said. I mean, John says at the end of his gospel, if you wrote down all the things Jesus did, we'd run out of paper and fill up the world so i 'm asking myself whenever I read the scriptures why is this here? why did God say this needed we needed to hear this as opposed to perhaps something else so sometimes when I'm trying to figure out the meaning of a scripture passage and and, and where it's going and, and what what its purpose is and why God may have included it one of the scenarios that i I think about is I'm sitting in the living room with someone maybe like some of you or in a in Java or someplace and I'm thinking to myself, what question might someone ask me that would cause me to say, well, let me turn to Malachi. Let me turn to this passage. Let me turn to that passage as the answer to your question. And that's what was going through my mind this week as I was looking at this passage from Malachi 2 and 3. I was picturing myself, or I'm sitting down, talking to someone. What question would they ask me? That would lead me to say, let me turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and read a few verses to you. And I think one of the questions that might have been asked that would lead us back to that passage is Does God care about injustice? Does God care about injustice? Is God concerned about justice? I think if someone asked me that question, this is one of the places I would turn. Now, the the book of Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi, is really a a series of statements and questions and then answers. And so there are five occurrences. Virtually the whole book is designed that way, is prophecy. God makes a statement, Israel asks a question, and then God answers their question. Chapter 1, very first thing, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Israel's response is, really? How have you loved us? It doesn't look like you love us. We're not the nation we used to be. Things aren't going so well here for us. It doesn't feel like you love us. And God says, oh, I love you because I chose you. And I've done all these miraculous things throughout your history, and I continue to do them. Then God says, Despite the fact that you, you say that I'm your father, you have contempt for my name. And Israel responds, What? How do we have contempt for your name? I mean, we do all the sacrificing that you've called us to do. We're bringing all the animals in, we're, we're covering all of that. And God's answer is, Yeah, you're bringing sacrifices, but have you looked at these sacrifices? These are animals you wouldn't, you don't want anyway. These are the dregs of your flock. These animals are maimed and blind and diseased. I mean, you're just trying to think of a way to get rid of them. And these are the things you bring to me and say, "Oh, we're good." Try giving those, try offering those to your governor as a gift, and see how he likes it. And yet you keep bringing them to me because you have contempt for my name. You don't really love me and care about me. In chapter two, verse ten. God says, here's the thing, even if you brought the right sacrifices, I wouldn't accept them. And now Israel says, why won't God accept our sacrifices? And he says, because of the way, because the way you're disregarding the marital covenant that I set up for you. You're going off and you're marrying, you're marrying people from other places who don't worship me, and the underlying mindset is, hey, all the gods are the same. Yahweh's no different than Baal or, or Ashtoreth or Marduk or any of the other gods of any of the other nations. What difference does it make? God's not unique. And when you do marry people of the faith, you treat them with contempt. You're unfaithful. And you men, you divorce your wives at the drop of a hat and you leave them helpless. That's why I'm not accepting your sacrifices. You jump ahead to chapter 3 verse 6 and God says He says to them if you return to me, I'll return to you. I don't change. I'm with you all the way through this but you've run away from me. But if you come back to me then I'll I'll come back to you. And Israel responds by saying, Wait, well, how can we return to you? We've never gone away from you. Man, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, these questions are maddening. It must drive God nuts. The whole time they're saying this, they're worshiping Baal and all these other gods. We haven't gone away from you. And God says, You've gone away from me by cheating me. And they say, How have we cheated you? He says, By not bringing in the stuff, the tithes and the offerings in the storehouse. And their response is, well, we would do that if we got any return on our investment. If we felt like we were getting anything out of this relationship, getting anything out of what we were giving, we'd keep giving, but we're not. I mean, I look around the world, and all the rich people aren't people who are giving to you. So why would we give to you? And then you come to this passage we read this morning, and this is the fifth one, fourth in the series. And here God says, you are wearying me with your words. You ever been around someone who wearies you with their words? Maybe you're thinking, of coming to church on Sunday morning, he is wearying me with his words. You know, you just, they sort of wear you down. You're just talking, talking, talking about nothing. And God says, you guys, are you're wearing me down. You're wearying me with your words. And they coursed off their hands and say, "How are we wearing you with our words?" He says, "You're saying all this great stuff about how much you love me and how much you how important I am to you and, and how much how much you want to follow me, but you disregard justice. You don't care about the poor." You don't care about widows and orphans. You don't care about anyone who's marginalized in society. You don't care about aliens and strangers. You don't care about people in need. And I'm telling you, your words are empty, worthless, meaningless. Because you don't care about other people. And you are saying, God doesn't care either. And you're asking, so where's the God of justice? God has always cared about justice. I mean, Israel starts out. God lays out the laws for them. We have all these different laws that God says, this, if you're going to be my people, this is how you're going to live. If you're going to be my people, this is what you're going to do. And we read through the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and our heads begin to spin and we're thinking, good grief, what does all this stuff mean? And some of it is just is is confusing and, and we have to contextualize it, but But the commands we don't have to contextualize, the commands that are not confusing, are the multiple times that God says, you care about the most vulnerable people among you. You're responsible for them. You take care of them. Widows and orphans and aliens and strangers and people who don't have a way to support themselves and people who can't can't take care of, of themselves or their families. Those are the very people you need to care for. And God keeps repeating that over and over and over again. And now in Malachi, he comes back to it again. Hundreds of years later, they still aren't getting it. And the truth of the matter is, we struggle to get it. There are all kinds of things about the church that we are confused about, and we may argue about, and we may have different opinions about, but this is one of those things that ought to bond us together because it's really hard to argue it. If you're you're the people of God... You care about justice. You care about taking care of people on the margins. You care about taking about taking care of people who everybody else ignores. And sometimes it's hard, which is probably one of the reasons why we don't do it. But that's the command of God. And in fact God says the problem is the problem is you think I don't care. You think it doesn't matter, it matters. In fact, in verse 5, God says, people who do this, people who ignore justice, people who pervert justice, the reason they do that is because they don't fear me. And he doesn't mean by that that they're afraid of me. It's that they stand, they live in awe of God. They have a respect for God and who God is and what God thinks and how God feels. And people who disregard justice live with a mindset that who cares what God thinks? And so God's solution is I'm going to send two messengers. He begins chapter 3 by saying I am sending my messenger and that first messenger is going to prepare the way for the second messenger. Probably, I mean, more than likely he's referring to John the Baptist. And then he says After that messenger comes, then the messenger of the covenant, which is a different messenger, sets him apart. And that messenger is Jesus. And says, this messenger is coming, and he's going to come for one purpose, and that is to refine and purify. He's going to make you holy. He is going going to to burn off the dross and all the, the crud of your lives and all the ways in which you misinterpret me and pervert justice and all the things that you do, he's going to come and he's going to take care of that. He's going to work on that. I think one of the reasons that we run from that is because, quite frankly, refining and purifying and cleansing is painful. I don't know that metal can feel, but if metal could feel, it would be hurting big time With the high heat that it takes to burn off the dross, to purify it. I don't think clothing can feel, but if it could, it would scream out in pain when there's a stain and we put some soap on it and we're scrubbing it and rubbing it to get that stain out. And you and I, we feel pain. And God says, I'm going to do similar things to you. I'm going to turn up the heat, I'm going to put on the soap and scrub. No wonder we run away from it. He says, that's why my messenger's coming. He's gonna make us holy. He's gonna give us one heart, one mind, one spirit, one focus. And that focus is God. And he's gonna gonna wipe out, he's gonna refine, he's gonna purify, he's gonna cleanse all the other stuff in our hearts that gets in the way, that pulls us away from God, that, that causes our vision to be blurred and twisted and confused. He's gonna separate that. Jesus comes to do just that. Tim Keller says that really our our lives are defined by the priority, the order of our loves. What do we love most? What do we love more? What do we love less? What do we love least? If we were to sit down for a few moments this morning and and write down, this is what I love the most. This is what I love more than other things. This is what I love less than other things. This is what I love the least. It would be interesting to to think about what's on those lists. And here's here's the problem, is that what we would probably write down on the list is what we think, what we would like for it to be, We should make a second list to say, all right, let's be honest. Here's how we live. And that's what Jesus comes to address. The disconnect between what we say and what we do. And that's Israel's problem. I mean, they're saying all the right things. They're coming and saying, God, you're so great. God, you're so great. And then they go out and they treat people contemptuously. They take advantage of people. And they abuse people. And they use people. And they ignore people. And they're apathetic toward people. And God says your words are empty and meaningless. Nothing. The scary part about this prophecy is that when we think about the world of injustice, we have a tendency to point our fingers at other people. They're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem. All these other people, that's where we tend to point our fingers. And they're certainly a part of it. We want to point at terrorists, people who, who, um, in our opinion, maybe live immoral lifestyles, maybe promote immorality, maybe promote things that are definitely against the scriptures, and we want to point at those people and say they're the problem. But Malachi says, "We're the problem." Malachi says, when the messenger comes. He's not coming to Babylon. He's not coming to Assyria. He's not coming to Moab. He's not coming to Philistia. He's, coming. he's not even just coming to Israel. He says he's zeroing in. He's coming right to the temple. Twice in this passage, verse 1, verse 3, he says he's coming to the temple. He's coming to the place where God's people worship. And he even singles out the Levites, the spiritual leaders of Israel he says, that's who the messenger is coming to refine and purify. It's us. See, one of the reasons I would turn to this passage about, if someone asks, does God care about justice? Is because more often than not, people don't think God cares about justice because they don't think God's people care about justice. And quite frankly, the image that God's people portrays is going to be the image that people have of God. And that's not something we lament. That's how God designed it. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God says to Abraham, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. People are going to look at you and me in you. And they're going to say, that's what God is like. And God chooses Israel and calls them out to be a nation. Not just so they can be special and nobody else and and no one else is special. But he calls them out so that the world will see this is what people look like who are engaged with God. This is what it looks like for people to, to be followers of Yahweh. Now don't you want to be followers too? And God calls the church to be the visible presence of Jesus on this earth. So that people will say, they have something I want. And when we twist that and pervert that and misrepresent God, people don't just look at us and say, what's wrong with those people? They say, what's wrong with those people and what's wrong with God? No wonder God sends a messenger to purify us. There are times when I want to say to anyone whether you're here or anywhere else and not a follower of Jesus, please forgive us. Forgive us for misrepresenting who God is. Forgive us for giving you the impression that God doesn't care about the most needy and vulnerable people in this world. Forgive us because that's not who God is. I had someone recently say that they have a friend who, who um, has a a quote, a couple of sentences that they put together that they they say in this on this line to say, want to say to people, look, forgive us because we're human and we make mistakes and we misrepresent God, but when we do that, hold think hold that against us. Don't hold that against Jesus because while we let you down, Jesus never does. While we may not want to forgive you, Jesus always does, and I think that it's great value in that, and and it's right. But at the same time, sometimes we use that as an excuse. We just simply say, well, you know, we're not perfect, so get over it. When the reality is we ought to be praying, God, purify me, change me, make me new, so that I am much more apt to represent you as you are than in some way that I have twisted and confused it. God says, when his people are purified, when his people get that, and we start getting becoming more like Jesus, then he says, if you let me purify you, you let me begin that process in you. Because, I mean, we're never going to be done with it. it it's, it's the whole of our existence. God is going to be purifying us. But if, we, if that's the desire of our hearts, to let him work in us, he says, then... I'll start accepting your sacrifices. Then what you bring to me, your worship, will mean something. It will not be words that weary me. They will be words that excite me and bring joy to me. And out of that, not only is your life going to be different, but everybody you touch is going to be different. All the people of this world are going to look at you and see how I've changed you and purified you and transformed you. And now you're projecting an image of me that is a lot closer than it was. And now people will see because you care about justice, because you care about people who are marginalized, because you care about, about the people that other people don't care about, they're going to start thinking I care about them too. And that's our calling. When I read this passage, quite frankly, it's a hard word. It's not one of those I-feel-nice kind of Christmas stories, it's, it's hard, and it's challenging, and it's painful. And it's something that, quite frankly, I often want to just run from because there's something in our spirits that would rather just stay as we are and avoid pain than engage in the pain of purification and refinement to become better than we are. But in the midst of that, what I see here is not so much judgment as grace. Because God gives us a warning. You know, he he brings us a warning and he says, my messenger is coming. He's going to come suddenly. He's going to come maybe when you least expect it. But he's coming. So be ready. Now's the time. To let me work in your life. Now's the time for me to change you and to transform you so that you can experience the fullness of all that I want to offer you. And it's not just about eternity. This is one of those cases where you get down to the end and, and you say, Why didn't I do that sooner? Why did I live with so much stuff, so much baggage, so much trouble? Why did I not let God purify me sooner so that I could know the peace and the joy and the grace and the witness of being his child? Why did I hang on so long? Why did I run so long? It's grace. It was a Paul quotes the Old Testament when he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not yours. And we often use that as a a sort of a a proof text for God's going to get you. I'm not allowed to, but God's going to get you. But I think it really is saying, look, your vengeance is always from the wrong motivation. Your vengeance is always to get back at people because they hurt you or embarrassed you Or because you're just frustrated with them. And God says, my vengeance is never like that. In fact, my vengeance really isn't vengeance. It's grace. Because I always operate from a heart of love and compassion and mercy and goodness. And there's always grace. And yes, the day is coming, as he says in verse 5, when people will face the consequences of their choices. If we decide that we really don't care what God does, we really don't care about who God is, we really doesn't make any difference to us, we're just willing to live as we are, then there are consequences of that, both now and eternally. But even for those folks, there's always grace. There's always an opportunity for every one of us. God will simply not leave us alone. He is always, always working. Always hoping, always trying to help us see things can be different, better, far more than we dream or imagine. I don't know if you have any uh, Christmas traditions in your families where you you maybe watch a, a Christmas show or two or a movie, getting to that time of year. It's coming fast. You know, maybe for you, especially if there are small children in your home, or maybe if there aren't, uh, you like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, or How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Maybe you like A Christmas Story. I find a lot of people who like that movie. For our family, it's A Christmas Carol. But it's specifically the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol. It's black and white, you know, the... Picture is a little bit fuzzy at times. It's old. Alistair Sims stars as Scrooge. I think it's the best rendition of that story. And every year, usually a day or two leading up to Christmas, we all get together in the evening and we make some hot chocolate or hot tea or something and we turn off all the lights except for the Christmas tree and we watch this show. And it's become a tradition for us. It started when I was a child. I was a kid, my... My mom, I think, is the one that started us watching it. And back in those days, you know, back in the ancient days, you only had four television stations. You know, you had ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. And most of PBS was educational television. So as a kid, it wasn't real interesting to watch. So basically, you had three channels. And shows were on once. You know, you look now, and they're on about 150 times over the course of a couple of months. They're on one time now. So when we, had to, we watched this movie, it was invariably on after the late news which in central time in Indiana was 10.30. So usually some night leading up to Christmas at 10.30, it was usually my mom and my older sister and me, we would stay up and get into the blankets and we'd watch A Christmas Carol. The two of them would almost always fall asleep. But I stuck it out to the end because I loved that movie. And now it's become a tradition for us. And I've seen it, I don't know, dozens and dozens of times. I was thinking about that movie this week. I was looking at this passage. And specifically, drawn to near the last part of the movie, Scrooge is is spending time with the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And the, in this, in the, that version of it, the, this ghost is faceless, silent, haunting figure in a in a hooded robe. It just points. He takes Scrooge all around and shows him all the things that are going to happen. and all the ways that people don't have any concern that he's died and gone. And they come to the graveyard. And Scrooge says to this spirit. Spirit, before I look at that tombstone. Answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be? Are the shadows of things that might be? And he turns and he sees his name written on the tombstone. And he falls down sobbing and wailing. And he gets up on his knees and he grabs the robe of the Spirit and he says, Spirit, I'm not the man I was. I'm not the man I was. And then he says, surely you wouldn't go through all of this if I was beyond hope. When I read Malachi's prophecy, I'm thinking about my own life, your life. God sends Jesus because none of us are beyond hope. Jesus is promised and Jesus comes because God wants to do something different in all of our lives. He wants us to live the way he lives. He wants us to see people the way he sees them and as despairing as we may be of ever getting to that point, there is always hope because of Jesus. this passage it, it doesn't answer the age-old question of why do good bad things happen to good people why is there pain and suffering but it does call us to realize that we have a place a role to play in being a voice a face a presence for God's justice in a world that needs it so desperately. Will we let him refine us and purify us and give us his heart so that we can be his people? Father in this moment of silence, Speak to us. Holy Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. I pray that you will continue to work in our hearts, in our minds, our spirits. Father, as we come today, we we know that we live in a world of great pain and grief and heartache. There are those who are grieving. Who are among us and connected to us. And we pray that you will bring healing to them. Especially at this holiday time. The pain. May be a little bit more exposed. Heal us and give us grace to help each other. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling with issues of health. We ask that you would... Pour out your healing grace on each person who is wrestling with issues of sickness and disease, pain. Father, we pray for the ministry of our church. We thank you, especially today, for the ministry of the King's Kids Clubs, the boys and the girls. This ministry that has been reaching out to children for many years, we pray that it will continue to be an outlet of grace and help. Lord, bless every student who comes. Bless every teacher and helper and leader and everyone who's involved and may they sense your spirit in every way. And Father, we pray for the church beyond us. We think of St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church in Fillmore. Thank you for their ministry, for Father Dennis and for all the ways in which they are impacting you in that community and beyond and we pray that you will continue to bless them. and Father, we pray for the church around the world. Thank you for what you're doing with the Jesus film. It is astounding. The millions and millions of people who have not only watched that film, but who have come to faith because of that film, continue to bless its effort, its work, its effect. And we pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters in Bangladesh and all that they are facing Opposition and threats and persecution. Give them courage and strength. Lord, so fill them with your love and compassion that even those who are persecuting them might come to faith in you. Lord, thank you for your grace in sending Christ. Help us to live in the truth of his coming. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.
1: As we respond to all that we have heard today, we have an opportunity to give back to God through the giving of our tithes and offerings.
0: Silence of waiting so long. We hear a baby's first cry. Into our midnight, a heavenly song it whispers that hope is alive. Oh, joy to the world on this holy night! To so sing with the angels that fill up the sky. is where I see tonight, love is mine, oh, 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 out in the stable beneath the bright tells us that we are Jesus is coming soon Call back the sinner Wake up the saint Let every nation Shout of your faith Jesus is coming soon Night of church, ready for you, every heart, longing for our King, we sing, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come, even so.